in the log, he saw that it flatlined the boost, which is seven bar map sensors, 80 pounds. So we said, we told the world it made 80 pounds, even though it could be well above that. Um, but it cracked the block all the way around below the head studs and uh, really became a two-piece engine. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're chatting with Brent from PFI Speed. Uh, Brent has been a long-time backer of the Honda platform. Many of you may already know him. He's got a very well-known uh, YouTube channel. And in this conversation, we go into a fairly wide-ranging set of topics. In particular, we talk about the various engines in the Honda range, the B-Series, the K-Series, the F20, even the H22. Talk about the pros and cons of each and why you would choose one over another. Our brand also is recently off the back of competing in Sick Week, which is a drag racing challenge where you drag race your car at five different tracks over five days, and in between you have to drive from one track to another. So a little bit of a challenge there, driving your drag car on the street and this is where you may have already seen cars towing around little trailers with everything they need to service the car and turn it from somewhat streetable into competitive drag car. The idea of course is to see how quick you can go on average across the tracks that you compete at as we'll find out didn't exactly all go smoothly. In particular there is uh, some social media posts that did the rounds a few weeks back where there's a Honda B18C block split in half, uh, arguably caused by potentially a jammed wastegate. So we dive deep into uh, what caused that, certainly some of the more spectacular engine failure photos that I've seen. Uh, before we jump into our conversation with Brent, just uh, a little background for those who are fresh to High Performance Academy. We're actually an online training school and we specialise in teaching people how to tune engines, how to build performance engines and how to construct quality reliable wiring harnesses for your car. We also cover other topics including fabrication, race driving fundamentals and how to optimise your car out on the racetrack and you can take any of our courses from the comfort of your own home. To find out a little bit more about the courses we include you can head to hpacademy.com forward slash courses that will give you a full list of all of the courses that we currently offer. Now, relevant to today's topic we dive quite a lot into engine building as well as tuning and of course as I mentioned we cover both of those topics. So a couple of courses that I think any of you who enjoy today's podcast may like. We start out with our EFI tuning fundamentals course that will teach you as you'd expect the fundamentals of EFI tuning. You'll find out how an engine works, how electronic fuel injection works and what we're actually trying to do when we're tuning them and you may be surprised to find out that I'd say 75% of professional tuners out there right now in the industry who are taking money off customers every day for tuning work still don't understand the information that is taught inside of that course. On top of that we have our engine building fundamentals course as well and I know this is a topic that a lot of home enthusiasts think that's 
a little bit beyond them. Most of the time we hear uh, people say things like, oh, but I'm going to need to spend tens of thousands of dollars on tools in order to build engines, and, and that's actually not the case. It's actually a lot easier and a lot cheaper than you probably think, and it's within the reach of any home enthusiast, provided you've got a bit of an eye for detail and a bit of patience. So uh, we've got our Engine Building Fundamentals course, perfect startup for those interested in learning how to build engines and that allows you to take your project build that you've maybe working on out in the garage or your shed to the next level all by yourself. Really rewarding to do all of that work yourself and we'll put a link in the show notes you can follow to find both of those courses. Also as an added bonus because you are a listener of this podcast you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 that is going to get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's jump into our interview. All right, welcome to the podcast, Brent. Thanks for, for joining us today. And for a start, where, whereabouts in the world are you joining us from? We are from Colorado, Fort Lupton, Colorado. You still got snow on the ground over there, or is it starting oh, yeah. to move more towards summer, spring? No, no, no. It's like two degrees outside. That doesn't make it that appealing to work no. on cars when your hands are freezing, in my own experience. <laughs> Yeah. All right, let's get a bit of background from you. So, so PFI Speed, uh, from what I understand, actually started uh, out of Parts Finder International. I believe that was the name. So, so how did you end up founding that business? And I mean, I guess it's somewhat self-explanatory. But yeah. tell us what you were doing. So, in high school, we were juniors in high school. A buddy of mine, Scott, and I, uh, we started a place called Honda Dismantlers. And we were, you know, taking Hondas apart and uh, selling the used parts and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, we started moving engines around and finding turbochargers and trying to blow through carbs and do all that wildness, you know. So we kind of started there and then it was kind of more Scott's business. So I moved along and uh, started Part Finders where I was basically a middleman junkyard. I didn't have the salvage yards, but I knew where they all were and what was in them. And uh, I would just sell parts. And that's, that was part finders. But then as uh, I did that, I was still in the, I had the Honda bug. So I was still tweaking my own car and people were wanting things. And so I started just doing that and I had more, way more fun doing it. So. Uh, so, so the Honda bug you've mentioned, you've, you've got, and obviously your, your business both then and now is, is very firmly centered on the Honda brand. So why has Honda been been your sort of livelihood and your passion? Um, you know, once we started to play with them, they were just and drive them and use them. It was just, you know, they were just simple little cars and just fun to fun to drive and fun to rip around. I think the other thing that that they they are they're an underrated vehicle, I believe. For for me, I think they're an excellent place to start learning to tune on because oh, uh, particularly when you're getting started that they're they're kind of hard to break they're a pretty robust package even yeah. when you start adding a turbocharger yeah, uh, and sure. then when you do add the turbocharger the, the the power that you can get out of them really is impressive without having to go and break the bank in terms of you know upgrading every damn part through the entire car yep. so was, well, I want to mention that I mean a lot of people knock Hondas I don't really know where that comes from uh, <laughs> but, but they definitely are a really good platform to, to get started in the sport compact industry I believe. I believe so too, for sure. So it sounds like 
Parts Finder International, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're doing the the parts finding, making money off that, but uh, you don't actually have to get your hands dirty wrecking cars and, and, and really. storing a junkyard full of cars. That's that's right. I mean, I, there was days I was at U Pullets, you know, and pulling parts and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was just a lot of just running around. It was pretty cool, honestly. Yeah, I did pretty good. In terms of your mechanical sort of background, is this any? Is there anything formal in your education there, or is this entirely self-taught? This is entirely self-taught. Like I just had a passion for cars and wanted to understand them and wanted to know how it worked and just dove in and just played with every little bit. I, I think that's important for those listening as well who are maybe just sort of starting out with a bit of a passion for cars and haven't really dived too far into it. I mean, this stuff is it's figure outable. You, you don't yeah. need to be a, a rocket scientist. And while yes, if you want to pursue a career as, as a mechanic, you know, a formal qualification in some instances is essential, but uh, particularly as an enthusiast, it, it's definitely not essential. And we do get asked that question often. So I just wanted to oh, sort of time. cover that off. All right. So talk us more through the, the development into uh, PFI speed as it is now building uh, race cars, obviously drag centric. That's your, your sort of your best known for. So again, I was just, I love tinkering on, on the, on the Hondas and stuff. And, uh, we did some engine swaps and we actually drove out to California, went to Bally imports and that like, that's what sprung the whole, all the drag racing and just trying to make the cars get A to B, that kind of thing. So we left Bally imports and we went right to work and, uh, tried to upgrade the cars and figure that out. And, uh, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of engine management stuff. So we, like everybody else, we're wiring the first Excel DFIs into them all, you know, and trying to figure that out and twisting shafts, trying to find the right crank angle. And, you know, um, it was pretty hardcore trying to make it all work. But that's where we kind of started the tuning. And we were literally driving them from Colorado to California to tune because that's the only place we knew there were dynos. So we would be tuning at JG Engine Dynamics or Harv St. Mary's dyno and we do that over the weekend and then come back to Colorado and start racing them or were you were you the man on the the laptop or the screwdriver as um, it may have been so, when the cars were on the dyno so back then we would actually it was Javier or uh Harv that would tune them and and he'd be teaching me stuff and showing me things you know um I didn't really totally understand that side of it yet but then as you know the trips became expensive it was a a must to learn how to do it. So I bought a dyno, which is the same dyno I still have. And this is like 96, 97. Um, I bought those and just started teaching myself on my own car. You know, I, I kind of had their maps of what they were doing and I just kept expanding on it and tweaking it and changing things and seeing how it worked. So t- talk us uh, to us a little bit about that learning curve because I mean ninety six probably not too different to the time frame where I was sort of getting involved, a- and back then we we didn't have the level of information that's out there on the internet now. There weren't uh, you know high performance academies. The the weren't YouTube. Uh, videos from hundreds of enthusiasts explaining that the process of EFI tuning. So. How did, how did you teach yourself? What what did you go through? Um, I mean, you know, I, honestly, I did, still didn't blow up a lot of stuff, but I varied that stuff and just saw what it did, checked plugs, you know, looked at power numbers. I still never understand, stood like, you know, 
the engine being choked out by exhaust housings or, or, or things like that. You know, you don't really know that stuff, but you start figuring out how to fuel it. Um, we still weren't using like, uh, cause back then that MoTeC wideband, um, like some of those shops in California had, you know, that was couple thousand dollars for that sensor and you can afford that so we'd make short pulls up every like 500 to 1000 rpm and then read the plugs and just keep going and that's that's how you do it that, that's that's a really interesting aspect because i 100 percent agree back back when i was starting out i mean, unfortunately wide bands were just not affordable there was a, a couple of a couple of models and you were talking as you say two to, to five thousand dollars for a lab grade wideband i mean yeah you, you can buy a a decent quality wideband kit now for probably a couple of hundred US. It's a very different world, and people getting involved so these different. days probably just don't know how how lucky they <laughs> are. But I mean, this brings me back to the, the this plug reading, and there's there's a lot of controversy around this. We've done a few posts on this as well, and I mean, the, there's guys out there who who've basically tuned everything and anything, you know faster than I've ever gone down the drag strip and, and all they've ever looked at is a set of plugs. So I mean, it, you can't say it's not a valid technique. These days I like to say that with the level of data we've got from quality widebands, exhaust gas temperature sensors, lambda per cylinder, etc., etc., the list goes on, I'm, I'm primarily using that as my guide. But the part that's probably easy to overlook is particularly when I was tuning anything that was a pretty high specific power output, like our, our old drag car for example, Literally every every pull, at the end of the pull, we'd be pulling the plugs and still having a look. And it's it's a case of combining all of that information, what we're learning from the dyno, what we're learning from the wideband, but still those plugs do give you a lot of insight into what's happening inside the cylinder. So Yeah, it's a great sensor. <laughs> it is. And at the pointy end, yeah. I think it's still important not to, to write it off. I think where people get confused though is – they want to read the plugs that are done a hundred thousand miles in their stock car that that are that are all carboned up and, and you know obviously that's a joke. You need to start with a fresh set of plugs. There's there's a process to go through. Yep, every time for sure. Obviously, in your career, just like mine, you've seen the improvements massively in terms of the quality of the electronic options we've got available. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I like to just mention because I did do quite a lot of work on Hondas back in my earlier days and um, I'm almost embarrassed to mention this, I had a good friend who had an EG Civic and uh, we, we did a turbo conversion on that back before we had really availability of, of standalone engine management and the way we got this to work, and I, I, I share this story just to show that there are options out there, would I do this now? Absolutely not, but there are options out there and what we could get away with and maybe just how robust the Honda platform is. So on that, uh, they handled the mechanical turbo installation, I didn't do anything with that, and the only options available to us there, we used a, a hob switch and an extra injector in the intercooler pipe pre-throttle body, and we retarded the base timing everywhere uh, until the thing didn't knock with 5 or 6 PSI of boost. And that was it. And that thing ran for about three years until it ended up getting proper engine management on it. So it, it's an ugly solution. That's pretty but, good. You know, when needs must, the, the, that that's what we got away with. So these days things have changed, obviously. So so much. So talk to us. Talk to us about what you've what what you've seen as the the key advantages from modern engine management. Oh man, I mean, it tells you, like you just said, the logging capability having all the sensors at your fingertips, knowing what's going on in the engine. 
I mean, that's, that's huge. I think the modern engine management is, I think even now we're still developing that technology and pretty soon I think we'll be able to have management that's even better than what you got stock in that. I mean, with goes with, I, I know we're going to talk about the EPA later, but um, one of their big things is, is uh, NOx, you know, and those sensors are being, are becoming cheaper and we'll be able to read that and we'll be able to tailor everything around that as well as like we do a wideband. And so just, I just think- for, for those who maybe glossed over that term NOx, we're not talking about NOx, you're talking about oxides of nitrogen. So it's an emissions That's output. It. It's an emissions output, right. Which is, you know, the big kicker in, in all the gas engines, which, you know, some of it's kind of the fuel we use too. But yeah, I mean, I think as that technology grows, this stuff will get cleaner and we can continue to make, you know, the good power we want to make and make this stuff even better. Yeah, I mean, th- this might probably be as good a place as any to segue into to the EPA because you're, you're very well known for uh, being one of a number of smaller shops that has uh, unfortunately incurred the wrath of the EPA for, for some uh, reason and and I'd like to maybe get you to give us your story on 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 how that actually sort of panned out. Um, again, I was I was out at a doing a tune out in California with another YouTuber and I was helping her out, and um, the shop received a certified letter. Um, it's called a two hundred eight letter. So you know anyone getting that, just get a lawyer right away. I did not. I went and I filled out all their paperwork, tried to do the best I could making sure everything was right. I didn't think it was a negative thing. It was, I figured it was tracking parts or something along those lines. So um, they wanted a bunch of information about your vendors and wanted, your customers and what you were selling. Yep. Yes. Yep. They okay. wanted to know what I was selling, who I was selling to and uh, exactly uh, what I was selling. So, or who I was buying from. Um, so we provided all the information and uh, it was six months later. So I got a, a huge fine saying I, you know, I broke the law on Hondatas. And uh, they weren't going after Hondata. They weren't going after anybody else. But um, I went to social media, obviously, and uh, let everybody know what was kind of going on. Talked to PRI. Started learning a whole bunch about the CPA stuff. And now I think I'm pretty versed. But um, I've been fighting all of that fine still, and I still am. Because um, I was able to prove that every one of them I sold went towards a competition vehicle, which is what their rules are. Like, here's a statement from the EPA on, on what they're, what, where they're at. The EPA certified motor vehicles cannot become non-road vehicles, even if it is used exclusively for competition, because the definition of motor vehicle hinges on the purpose of its design and not its use. So that, that's getting, that's getting very, very picky about yeah. what a motor vehicle is and what it can be. Yep. Uh, okay, so to, there's so much to dive yeah. into here that that's just making my head spin. So let's try and kind of rationalise all this. So okay, the Honda was the product that they they chose. So there was there's no kind of onus of proof that that product was being used in an illegal way because while admittedly using an aftermarket EC of just about any any generation and and still meeting emission standards uh, in some instances impossible in some instances uh possible but difficult so i'm not going to get into that but no no a burden of of proof that 
this product was actually being used in a way that, that circumvented emission standards anyway by the EPA. That was just assumed. Right. It was assumed. I, and I had just sold the products on our website. Like it was just, you know, buy from somewhere and send somewhere. It wasn't like I was putting tunes in them. I wasn't putting them in for that matter. It was just selling them. Okay. So the, the next thing that, that kind of comes on from, to, follows on from that is, would it not make more sense? Uh, again, I'm obviously not a lawyer, I'm not the EPA, but I would have expected it, if you were the one doing the tunes and you were providing clearly uh, emissions defeat tunes, yes, I, I, I accept that. For a road car, there's probably some liability there and I get that. But you're, you're just on selling this product and someone else is doing the tune, but they're not the ones liable, it's you for selling the product. And then... The next step from that is, as you've mentioned, is not Hondata they're going after, it's you as the reseller. Is there, do, do, did you get to a point of understanding why it is they're going after resellers as opposed to the original product manufacturer? Um, no, honestly, and I, I'm still trying to figure that out. I, you know, whether it's to just put fear into this industry or you know, change it to, I, you know, I'm still, I still don't quite understand that part of it. I don't understand how us buying or selling the products is illegal in any way. I mean, that's that. That's basically how they're treating it. Is if I was to sell, even if I was to sell, you know, any tuners for that matter, if it plugs into an OD, OBD2 port, um, it's wild. I mean, they they even not, they just got um, some Subaru shop last week. I was talking to the people at PRI. I'm not sure which shop it is, or but they were even getting dinged for tunes with EO numbers, which is the exemption tune numbers. So okay. in our world, we're assumed protected, you know, and able to sell, but evidently not that either. It's a, it's a scary time to be in the aftermarket industry, particularly if you are unfortunate enough to be in the US. You ended up with a, a pretty substantial fine over this. Can you, can you talk to us about what that fine was? And you know, I, I understand that EPA basically put uh, put two offers on the table, one much more attractive than the other. So let us yep. know how that went down. Yeah, they told me, uh, give us $18,000 now. And if you don't, within this time frame, you're liable for $180,000. <laughs> so just the good old 10x yeah. rule. Okay. Exactly. Um, no, no discussion around how they came to to those numbers um no i've heard different things but i don't really know how they came up with that those numbers not not at all i'm not sure so i i guess at this point i mean i'm guessing as a a smaller shop you're probably not just stacking gold bullion out the back and eighteen thousand dollars i know when i was running my business that would have that would have been a substantial hit to to my tuning business it's not we're not talking chump change here no and and i'm still in that kind of neck of the woods you know i still work for a living and this stuff isn't like most of the time you you know if you had a shop you're you're solving problems you're just trying to make it run in general first you know, you haven't even got to making sure everything else works. You know, it's just making the cars run and then from there. So, yeah, any kind of that. And you don't, you're not making that kind of money to, to pay those kind of fines. So, yeah, it was huge. And I've, and I have been told that was probably the lightest fine anyone's ever heard about from the EPA. Most of them I have heard of much of, larger fines. Yeah, hundreds of thousands to millions. So, so at this point, do you, do you uh, engage a solicitor? And go down that path, or is it just pay the fine, 
move no, on. I'm, and, I, I haven't a lawyer. I'm, I'm not paying the fine. I don't believe I did anything wrong and I don't believe any other shop like mine is doing anything wrong. Um, so I, in my thought process is, you know, if I don't stand my ground, then somebody else that I've taught or, or, uh, you know, shown how to do this, um, they could be dinged someday too. So, you know, no matter what I'm not paying, I'm working towards a solution that helps everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to stand here as well and, and and say that emissions is something we should be ignoring. Obviously, you know, there's there's some things going on in this world with climate change, and and there's some responsibility that that lays on our shoulders. Anyone who is modifying cars, but I do see a distinction between what we do on the street and what in in essence is a microscopic percentage of the total number of cars when we're actually talking about dedicated race cars. So I I can certainly see this this distinction between those two. And and from what I understand, there is some moves ahead with the RPM Act to try and kind of get some some clear guidelines on what we can and can't do for dedicated race cars. Um, Can you give us maybe like the the 30,000 foot view of what the RPM Act is and where that is at? Um, so the RPM Act will say will protect basically shops like mine where we're building competition vehicles and we're taking um, a VIN numbered car, a motor vehicle, and we're converting it to a race car. It'll protect you doing that. And that is, you know, I think that's step one to all of this. Um, and the education can't stop as well. But the RPM Act um, will help protect businesses um, from any type of EBA, EPA action like what's going on with me right now does this also influence the type of cars you would consider working on i mean obviously if the rpm act goes through you've got you've got this freedom to work on dedicated race cars that will never turn a wheel on on a highway or freeway that that's one thing so does that mean that you would clearly just i'm not working on any road going cars that that's my line in the sand and that's i mean that is where we're at right now um here at the shop, that is primarily what we're doing. I mean, that's we started our own little race series even so that these guys got a place and an outlet. Um, I like to compare it to like when I was young, we, we were in a skateboarding and riding bike and we would do it everywhere, street skating. And we would, you know, we'd ride everywhere. And that became a big problem and was facing, you know, criminal stuff. Um, and then they came out with the skate parks and we got off the street and you know, we were at the skate parks. So where the, where the future I see a lot of this is that type of thing. We need motorsport parks where we can drift and drag road races, um, tune our cars, build our cars, and it'd be a safe environment away from the street, away from prosecution, away from, um, all the negative side that goes on with the industry. You know, we, we, if we can give some kind of outlet, you know, it'll become the norm and that's where I'm trying to go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I grew up with the the normal sort of things that young guys into cars end up doing and I got through all of that and, and now being maybe a little bit older and a little bit wiser, I, I do see the benefit of of providing an outlet that is safe and, and legal and unfortunately, at least here in New Zealand, that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, to, to do uh, and not all major centres have that, which which is unfortunate. So while, while that's the case, I mean, clearly you're always going to have a, a street racing element, um, which 
just ends up putting our sport into disrepute and and ends up causing those sort of negative social media uh, the negative social media attention which which we all want to stay away from. Uh, We'll move on from the EPA because I don't want to sort of in, yeah. have this yeah, whole yeah, podcast yeah. sort of yeah. on, a, on a downer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's where, it. where is that RPM Act at? Is, is it likely to pass? And if so, you know, how far away is it? So right now, um, it's up to um, the chairman of Energy and Commerce out of New Jersey, Frank Pallone. We need him to take it down to the House floor and uh, and to make something happen so any new jersey racers out there i mean we we need you guys to be contacting and uh letting them know this is our livelihoods and this is our passion and and we need them to do that yeah a hundred percent i can i can only hope that um that will move forward in time all right so let's get on to uh brighter topics and and Honda engines. We've kind of already touched on the fact that um, you know they're they're a really good platform, even in stock form, to to learn how to tune on. They're relatively um, relatively strong and you know forgiving. I guess is the the term I'm looking for. But you know things get a little bit more exciting when you start adding boost, and before long you're going to need to to start upping the ante with the internals. So. There's there's a, a range of different engines that have gained popularity. Obviously, there's the, there's the B series. Uh, every time we post anything on our SR powered eight six, we inevitably get a uh, hundred thousand Honda lovers in the comments saying we should have K swapped it. No argument actually <laughs> either from me. I love the K series, but let, let's awesome. start with the the B series. Uh, obviously, it came before the the K series and it's still a very active uh, market of of people modifying and. and uh, building those engines, and as far as I understand it, as well, at least as far as sport front wheel drive goes, the the B series is still actually the engine of choice over and above the K series. Is, is, is my understanding correct there? Yeah, it is. Um, and why, I, why is I that the case? I, a lot of it goes to you know the kind of torque the K series makes and managing that with the gear ratios that are available, um, the exhaust housings and exhaust size exhaust size wheel the turbine wheel those kind of are need to be developed some still for the k-series because it flows so much air you know choking them out it happens quick especially once you start turning eleven thousand plus rpm they start nosing over the gearing isn't quite right for it to be stretched out like we are um so i think as you know exhaust housings get bigger and if they're allowing different size turbine wheels we could or even a way to just flow a little more not to choke it out, you'd see some super fast times. I guess when you look at that sport front wheel drive class as well, it is a control class in terms of the turbocharger. So there's some limiting factors around there. When you talk about the the torque of the K series, uh, I'm guessing there what you're talking about is that the the torque is over and above what a B series will produce, all things being equal, and that can be enough to overcome the traction of a front wheel drive chassis. Yeah, it can, and and. Obviously, we're all doing cuts and trying to plot dots and and get man get it managed. Um, but it still seems like you know stuff could be better. Just bringing the power, dulling the power way down, um, and having a stretched out first gear would probably help the car. Any cars with a K series a lot. All right. So what what goes into building a a, a really bulletproof B series? Yeah, you know, if we're talking you know north of a, a thousand horsepower, what are you going to need to to consider there? Because in the mainstream, we're now seeing more and more billet block options coming out. 
Um, but the, the B series seems to actually do pretty well with, with the stock block, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it, and they're still pretty basic. Some, some guys stud the, the mains, um, but stock bolts will still hold it. A set of cylinder sleeves and a, some L19 head studs and, you know, step deck it or O-ring it. And that's basically still the same combo. So the the sleeve though really that that's kind of the the key there because the yeah. the B series block is an alloy block and it's open deck so the, there's a limit to how far you're going to get with cylinder pressure there before things start moving around and and ultimately you're going to crack a, a a liner so that that's kind of the the key modifications for reliability there. Yep, yep, the sleeve is the key for sure. Okay, a good tough sleeve and and we've been you know dry decking them as well. To, just in case you do push a gasket, you don't end up ripping the blocks in half like we did in Jamie's car. Well, we'll talk about we'll talk about that in, in a moment because I did want to dive into that's not something you see every day. But uh, for for those who aren't aware that that term dry deck, what are you, what are you talking about there? The two halves between the cylinder head and the block. I mean, they're just you don't allow any water to come through there, so you just reroute the water uh, in the block and out of the block and through the head and out of the head instead of having it transfer between the two. So the advantage there being that if you do end up lifting a head, blowing out a head gasket, you're not going to push uh, combustion pressure into the into the cooling system. And I think the other aspect of that is, I mean, it's not just the mechanical aspect that we need to consider. There's a safety element there for any, any race car, but particularly in drag racing, where that can, in, in a roundabout way, end up getting water under the tyres, which is the last thing you, you need at maybe 150 mile an hour. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the B series, and while you know, obviously, yes, at this point, the sport front wheel drive haven't sort of jumped on the the K series bandwagon. I mean, for for me, having tuned dozens, hundreds of different engines, I, I think I still come back to the K series that I believe is probably the ultimate four cylinder, naturally aspirated cylinder head. Like I, I have not come across anything else that that really comes close maybe the maybe the nissan sr20 ve cylinder head but you know i'm a bit biased there because of our uh, our own race cars so you know what, what other than that head where, where are the pros and cons of the the k series versus the b um i mean the k series i mean the b series is easier to work on obviously with the timing belt and that kind of stuff you can they can come apart and go together so fast um in between round stuff is is nothing. Uh, the K series, there's a little more to it, gluing and, and prying stuff apart. But for flow, you know, the K just, like you said, for all naturally aspirated stuff, it just flows so good. The, the, the cylinder heads just, they, they put a lot of time in designing it. You can put uh, big valves in it, big pistons in it. So, you know, the room to grow is, is wonderful in it too. And there's rooms for big cranks, you know, and where like the B series, you know, even a 95 millimeter stroke is, is tough. Um, and I've heard of guys doing even more offset grind and bigger stuff, but you really end up grinding way inside the block to make swings. And then, you know, having enough deck height to actually have the piston work right and rod ratio, there becomes so much involved with it that the K is just awesome in that I, way. I think so, it, it's, it's, it's easy to overlook, but sometimes bigger in terms of capacity is, isn't always better. And when, you're negatively impacting the strength of the engine architecture in order to get a little bit more capacity into it. That that sometimes is is you know 
it's not going to last that long. And I mean, obviously, with the K series, there's there's a ready path to go K24 as well. So so that's uh, a pretty good way of getting some capacity into into a K series to start with. Interesting point you made there about the the maintenance aspect and be able to actually physically work on them because I think that again is something that's really easy to overlook, particularly in a drag application. Uh, you know, best intentions aside. We're spanning on these cars, wrenching on these cars between rounds, and sometimes that wrenching is is significant. Maybe you know you're swapping out a head gasket between rounds, so the ability to do that quickly and easily um, that makes a, a massive difference. Whether you're going to make that that next round when you're working on a tight time frame. Um, the other aspect with the K series, which is is an obvious benefit, is it runs the conventional VTEC mechanism, but a continuously variable intake cam. Now, in, in a road race application or a street driven car. Uh, that's a godsend. The ability to swing that cam is, is great, but I mean, if you if you're looking at an all-out drag engine, which may only run across a, a narrow rev range, maybe sort of let's say eight to ten thousand RPM, uh, is that is that in your opinion an advantage there, or is it basically you know, a, a moot point? Um, the VTC, uh, yeah, in a drag race application, I would say it's a mute point for sure, because like you said, you're trying to narrow that window up anyway. As the turbos get bigger, you want tighter gears and more of them. So it becomes a mute point for sure. Okay. Uh, when people are looking at selecting uh, in engines for a potential build, obviously we've got the, the B and K series. There's the F20C as well out of these 2000, which sort of was a, seemed like a bit of a precursor to the K series. Uh, for a rear-wheel drive application, I mean, it makes a, a lot of sense. It's, it's what they came out in. But, um, you know, can you give us any advice on you know, pros and cons of the F20 versus the K series and where you'd choose one over the other? Um, I'd still choose the K, um, but I do have a love for the F20. Um, the F20 is way easy to, to work on cam-wise, so if you needed to swap cams, do it really fast. Uh, the engine flows so much air, almost too much air for its own good, honestly. <laughs> but, it, it, but it, you know, it sings. Um, they're, the Fs have gotten so expensive right now that that's probably the biggest deterrent of doing a lot with that engine. I, I, for my own race car, I have an F in it right now and I have, I think three heads and three bottom, three blocks. So it's like, you know, everything kind of has to be taken care of. Um, where they K, you know, a few hundred bucks and you can have any block, you know, and the blocks are all pretty much the same except the K24 is a little taller deck, but, but it, all the K blocks are pretty close. Um, so they're just cheap. And, and that's a big part of all of this as well is just keeping it within your budget. Cause if you're racing without out, out of your means, you're not going to have much fun and you're probably going to sit most of the time. I think it's really important to to just understand that uh, again, best laid intentions aside, sometimes things do go wrong. So the ability to source replacement components that aren't going to break the bank is is pretty important. And I, I assume that that simply comes down that price of the F series uh, simply comes down to they were never produced in the numbers that we see the K series being produced in. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you know, um, the raddest is you use the K and you use the F crank. The, the 90 millimeter stroke and then put it in a K24 and you can have yourself a just a great rod ratio, high ripping, great engine. So, I mean, you can marry this the parts as well and, and have the best of everything. So there's interchangeability within the families yeah. there, even though there are yeah, differences. The Hondas are awesome like that. Yeah, you can, you can move stuff around and make it all work. It's wonderful. 
Okay. Now you mentioned uh, you referenced Jamie's car earlier, and uh, for those who haven't seen the video uh, or the uh, the stories that went around Instagram a little while ago, uh, it it didn't end that well at uh, at a drag event uh, in terms of the block splitting in half. I've actually, I must admit, I've never seen. Uh, anything quite so catastrophic with a, a Honda B series, so um, yeah. Obviously, we we don't have pictures here. It's a podcast. Uh, talk us through uh, what actually went down. Okay. Um, well, he got into the burnout box. He had a brand new set of slicks on there, so he was going to do himself a big burnout just to get the slicks ready to go. Um, we had a big lofty goal for that week. We wanted to run eights at every track and show we could do it in a front wheel drive Honda. Uh, so yeah, he, he put her in third or fourth and let the clutch out, stood it up and it made a whistle. <laughs> you wouldn't believe, <laughs> um, but it, yeah, pushed water out the front, but wa- pushed water out the exhaust and, uh, it didn't get out the burnout box. Uh, once they got it back to the pit, um, they started diving in and trying to find out what happened. Um, in the log, he saw that it, Flatlined the boost, which is seven bar map sensors, 80 pounds. So we said, we told the world it made 80 pounds, even though it could be well above that. Um, but it cracked the block all the way around below of the head studs and uh, really became a two piece engine. Yeah, it's pretty impressive actually. The the video and photos that I saw floating around after that is the um, the ARP head studs did a pretty good job because they weren't letting go no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> they were still yeah, firmly were. attached to the outside of the block. <laughs> it really was, and uh, you know I don't know. It probably blew the gasket between the cylinders during the when it was making boost, and that's probably what pressurized the coolant and cracked it all the way around. But it's fun to think that uh, you know that it maybe it just blew it when it lifted just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's a financial impact to, to fixing this, but I mean, that is, it is always pretty impressive when you're making big power, when things go wrong, they, they don't go wrong in a small way. So you've normally got a pretty impressive uh, trophy cabinet of uh, broken parts to show off to your buddies. And it's not the worst break in the world, honestly. Let me tell you, like, Everything in the block was still good, rods and pistons and cranks. So all of it just needs moved to another block, and we're going again. Could always be worse. All right, the, the million-dollar question, though, What obviously, if we have a problem, that's one thing. What we need to do is diagnose and find out what caused the problem so that we can prevent it happening again. And obviously, you said it's flatlined at, at 80 psi, and for, for those who maybe missed that reference, you know, the map sensor only reads to 80 psi, so it's flatlined at 80 psi. It's anyone's guess how far up and above 80 psi it was. So it could have been 85 psi, it could have been 140, we, we, we'll never we know. We have no idea. But um, you know, what should it have been running? And then the obvious question is, how did it get to 80? Um, so the, in the burnout, it's set for around 40, 45 psi in that range. Um, that's what the burnout boost is. It runs an E-gate. So once it gets to our set point, which was you know, the 40, 45 pounds, it should open and then just hold the boost. Well, the PIDs were working super hard, but nothing happened. And uh, the gate just stuck shut. Okay. So no, no wastegating at all. No wastegating whatsoever. It was just every bit that turbo could do. Okay. Now, obviously, 
the the Turbo Smart E Gate is an electronic wastegate, so it does away with the pneumatic side of things and, and controls the wastegate electronically. And, and that product is not a not not brand new for Turbo Smart. I think we covered it a couple of years ago at PRI when it was just released, but it's uh, it's got some runs on the board now. And electronic wastegate technology in general in the OE world is far from new. One of the issues we covered when that was released was uh, the fact that it does have quite a high current draw requirement, a maximum of about 20 amps off the top of my head. And, and that straight away caused a, a bit of a, an issue for a lot of the aftermarket ECUs, particularly those dealing with the uh, AMP SuperSeal 1.0 connectors in that the individual contacts through that connector are generally sort of 7, 8 amps is about as far as you'd, you'd sort of push them. Uh, and then there's been a few ECUs that have come up with sort of alternative solutions, maybe an external driver box or uh, paralleling two outputs. Anyway, so I digress, but uh, how were you dealing with that? I, I believe that was running on FuelTech? Yeah, it was running on FuelTech. Um, it had their uh, little controller control box as well. And, you know, the FuelTech's nice and how you can self-cal it, which, you know, we we were calling it before each event just, just to double check it. It had cowed earlier, so we weren't worried that it was stuck or anything. But yeah, I mean, through the fuel tech, we used it on the MR2 as well. And, you know, it worked flawlessly. We ran consistent sevens on that and it went wherever we wanted it. And then in Jamie's car, the previous event, I mean, we made five passes and didn't have one issue. It was doing everything it was told. Um, the car sat, you know, it is humid there. We're not sure if that's anything to do with it or not, but it sat for a period of time, um, and then we came back out for that other event and first hit, went to the ceiling. This is from uh, talking to you before we started recording, this is still still ongoing, so there isn't actually a, a resolution as such. So, you know, uh, we're not we're not chucking Turbo Smart under under the bus here. Um, it, it's obviously a case of uh, working with both FuelTech and and Turbo Smart to, to find out what happened. To and find out what happened to, exactly. Yeah, make sure it, it doesn't happen again because no one right. wants to go through that scenario uh, twice. Um, you know, I mean, you know. Even going back to that, I kind of would like to see as these guys, you know, as electric gates come out, you know, we almost need like a a resting point is open, you know, instead of clamp shut, you know, and maybe some type of curve to push it down and and then ramp it in, you know, I mean, there could be ways around this, we all just got to get kind of creative and play with those. So, you know, I think maybe something like that's to look in is something to look into just in case there's a motor failure, it doesn't, it's not pinned shut, but maybe the resting's open. Yeah, that's um, that's a good point, definitely. Yeah. All right. So, in terms of the the E gate, because I haven't personally had a chance to play with one. Obviously, the, this aside, when when they're working and you've got good control with whatever ECU you're controlling them with, where, why have you moved from a pneumatic wastegate to the E gate? Where, where do you perceive the the sort of key advantages? Um, cleanliness, um, bringing you know, making them spool real fast. You know, less plumbing, less stuff everywhere you know um i mean that was the kind of and and besides the fact of learning the new technology and and watching this tech grow and being part of all of that i mean it was really nice to watch as i pressed the throttle to watch the boost go up at the same rate as my foot i mean that's you know that's an amazing thing you know not seeing lag like that so you know those kind of things just kind of sell you on it what what are the key things i think that, that appeals to me, and particularly for a, a traction-limited drag car. You know, traditionally with a pneumatic wastegate, you're swapping springs, and you know you put, let's say, a, a 10 or a 
15 psi spring in the wastegate, which maybe the car will leave the line pretty good in 60 foot width. But of course, in the deep end, you want 50, 60 psi, and you can't get that spread with a conventional pneumatic wastegate. So yes, of course, you can use CO2 boost control, which is a popular technique. But uh, with the the e gate, you've got no springs, and you basically tell the gate to do what it what you want, and you can get essentially just about any boost range that you want. So I think for me, that's um, that's obviously a, a, a real big selling point. Uh, I mean, I've got to ask, boost cut would have maybe saved that engine. It would have definitely saved it, and the uh, so there was always a cut in it before, and then the last event they started playing with things, and they were worried it was going to hit cut during a pass so it was still off from a previous event but it's not actually as uncommon as it sounds for people to to switch off uh any form of limiters and i know particularly in australia where they're they're mad keen on their rotaries and it's pretty common to run with no rev limiting no boost cuts nothing they they don't want the engine to touch a limiter because there's a potential for for damage. So you know, just just to to put some context around that, it definitely isn't uh, isn't unheard of. But you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty as well as we as we like to say. Yeah, and it was cool for pictures. But uh, <laughs> what I was <laughs> but what I was going to say is, I I think another cool way to to do the E gate one day. Um, not, I mean, you could would be to even have a one to one a back pressure type table and then you know we can work on the trash control or slipper clutch taking taking care of a lot but if you know you just kept the boost one-to-one the entire time i mean that's as much power as that thing can make it's let her flow I mean, yeah it, it, it definitely the, there's there's a lot of control options just around pretty much what you can dream dream up so yeah a lot more flexibility than a, a conventional pneumatic gate gives now, we've talked a little bit about the advances in electronics, and I just want to sort of dive back into that topic because uh, it, it seems from from looking at your content that uh, you, you've sort of aligned yourself pretty firmly with with fuel tech. And uh, fuel tech, we've actually got one sitting on the shelf that hopefully, if I ever find some spare time, is, is going in uh, our own FD three SRX seven. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty keen to to get some experience with that. We've had people crying out for course content on the fuel tech. Uh, and they're making some some big waves, particularly in, in drag racing. So, what is it about the fuel tech that sort of drew you down that path? I think it's it's the simplicity of you know I can help a client out with it, and then he's not stuck with me. You know what I mean? I once once the table is built and things are done, um, I can teach clients how to use it, and uh, they can they can go to the track and they're self sufficient without you know a bunch of uh, of trying to get a hold of me or 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 any other help, I think that's a that's that's what initially drew me in. And then once using it, you know, any input can be any input, any output can be any output. Um, the expansion, um, all the crank and cam options that you can, I mean, it's 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 truly unlimited in those ways. And then it's, you know, the I always call it nerd speak, you know, because the guys that write programs and the guys that are tuning them are they're different dude. Uh, they're different yeah. guys. We talk different. You know, we think different. We say it, what it is uh, differently. Um, so like even myself, I tune in Motec M1, which is just a phenomenal system. But it was a huge learning curve for me to reread, reread, reread and find 
what it was I needed to do to say what it, it does. Now, I'm not, and it, not talking against it because it is awesome, but fuel tech, it's simple explanations. You know, even the two-step, it says bang pop, you know? <laughs> you know, so it, it speaks to the guys that have a passion to do this, that want to do this, but do not have the time um, to learn all that little stuff. Um, and, the, and, and you're able to put it on a car and get racing that afternoon. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, the likes of the M1, and you've mentioned that, but not just to single out MoTeC. Yeah, it, it is a complex system, and you do need to, to understand their, their naming sort of mentality uh, and and how they lay out the ECU, whereas a lot of ECUs, you know, a little bit more maybe intuitive if you if you've come into it with just a basic understanding of aftermarket ECUs. Now, one of the other nice things with fuel tech is obviously they're not solely dedicated to drag racing clearly but uh, they have put a lot of time into developing drag specific uh, features function sets etc which obviously works nicely with what you're doing and I'm interested to just sort of know uh, what what in generally using if any in terms of the the uh, electronic functionality in terms of launch strategies with a, a powerful front-wheel drive car and anything in the way of traction control strategies if you happen to be using them as yeah. the car goes down the strip. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we we try to get the best wheel speed sensors we can with as many teeth as possible so we can uh, just have control of the tire throughout. Most of the time it's through first and sometimes into second just a little bit. But um, it's just having that resolution um, and then we'll plot dots on where the, the car's got like stepper rev limiters almost, you know, so it'll, you'll hear it up, up, up. And then it's just getting a handle on how the tire's moving versus the wheel speed and putting a whole bunch of weight on the front and let them go. I mean, that is, that's basically how we're doing it. Plot the dots and let her go. <laughs> Plot the dots. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. And there'll be, you know, and we'll also pull timing through those, those ranges depends on how it's going. Um, Boost all very sometimes, but most of the time I let the boost just it. You know, if I'm gonna go down the track with 60 pounds, it's gonna be 60 pounds at first, and we still like we'll just tug that down because the limiters. Okay, so you're you're basically feeding all of the boost in and then controlling the the power output with with timing etc. Other other techniques. Yep, exactly. Yep, it reacts okay. so fast. Uh, boost control stuff just. Even though, like I said, we were on the E-gate, it's still slower. It doesn't react as fast and it takes a bit to, to bring it back. So if you can just be there, you're good. Yeah, and I think just from my own experience with the four-wheel drive stuff, which is somewhat similar in terms of you know off, off the line, we're very much traction limited. And it's not till sort of third or fourth gear that um, the, the, the car will be able to put down everything it's capable of. But you know, one, one way of doing that, obviously, is is to step up the boost versus the gear. But when you're running these very large turbochargers on what is still a small capacity four-cylinder engine, uh, even with flat shifting, you still see the boost drop off considerably on a gear shift. So what that means is, if you're stepping the boost up, there's quite a significant time frame that you're losing as the boost comes up to your set point, no matter what boost control strategy you're using. So the advantage of having that boost in there rock solid the whole time, you know, there's no delay in getting it up there, and then you're just using different techniques to to control that that torque until uh, the tyre will, will take it. Now, in terms of, you know, you mentioned data logging and how important that's been to to the modern ECUs, and I 100% agree. 
what what are you looking at when a car comes back from a pass? What are you looking at in the data to sort of decide, all right, will the track take more power? What am I going to do for this next pass? What am I going to change in order to try and get a, a better ET, a better mile an hour? Um, it's, you know, as soon as it comes back, you're, you're kind of looking at your, your wheel speed um, versus where our cuts are. And then again, just trying to get that RPM and wheel speed to be more in line with each other as, as much as possible. You know, you may get a little wheel speed up just to, to get the car moving, um, but to be able to manage that wheel speed and have full control of it. So you might bring it up and then have it tugged down and then roll out. So the modern ECU and a log, uh, we'll look at all of that. And then down track, like you said, um, how fast is the driver shifting? And then watching his cuts and then just tightening the cuts up to what your driver's doing and just getting every little ounce out of that. And the rest is just pouring power to it. So that part's, that's the easy part. Power fixes almost everything. <laughs> almost. In terms of getting the car off the line and, and out to the 60, are you, you employing any clutch slipper units or slightest old clutches or is it just the old-fashioned uh, driver's left foot and that's the, the slip control mechanism? And it depends on the client, but you know we, we do love to use the slipper. Um, the slipper makes things consistent no matter who's behind, the, who's driving it. Um, some, of the, some of the times where the client just has the little pill and you work around that, and then others, it is the driver. Um, like Booster Boy Kyle is always the, the driver, so I'm always working on how his clutch is leaving and watching that. So, um, I mean, it, for me, it just depends on the client and how they're set up. And, and I, I prefer a slipper valve and just to make it normal every time. I found with my own cars that um, it, it, it's just so difficult for me at least to get consistency launch after launch if, if I'm just relying on my left foot. So the, the slipper definitely meant that I was getting the same same launch every time which, which definitely uh, makes the car a hell of a lot more consistent. Now Let's move on. I want to talk about your son's car, Shane's car, which is another car that you're pretty well known for. This is a, it's a pretty cool little little package it's there. Uh, CRX, but uh, it, it's not like too many CRXs I've ever seen on the street. So you've converted it to all-wheel drive as well. And I mean, while I am quite certain that there's been a significant budget tied up in this car, it, it also looks more relatable probably to the average guy or girl in terms of it's not clearly a sort of a a million dollar build is it no not at all honestly that car is mostly (laughs) hand-me-downs um so like the the engine is the h series out of the h22 prelude which is pretty cool and all the internals of that came out of my old race program from the early 2000s um, so aluminum rods, the Aries pistons, that kind of stuff. It was all stuff that I had for years. So, um, he sourced a lot of that stuff, um, that was laying around. And then, uh, we, we were in a car accident once and got a settlement. So we bought the transmission for it, you know, so, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, why so not? it's a, yeah, why not? It's a CRV all wheel drive trans with all the PPG gears in it. So it's all pretty stout. Um, but yeah, you package it all and put it in a little CRX, which the EF bay is probably one of the most difficult bays to work in, but it turned out really cool. You know, it, you know, everything's been built here. He, him and his friends have done it. Most of the work, um, Sean here built the turbo manifold, but you know, 
he did it all. Didn't want my help very much. I got to tune it, but the rest he did. And he, he, it's pretty awesome, honestly. Yeah, I, I assume that uh, he's he's had a pretty fortunate upbringing with, with you as a father, sort of showing him the ropes. It, I assume that he's now sort of at a point where he figures he's learned enough from you and, and that's why he didn't want your help with anything other than the tuning. So yeah, he's now was, learned enough from you that he's capable of basically building this car from scratch on his own. On his own, yeah, that's it. Yeah, something that's he impressive. wanted to do. And yeah, it, it really is. Um, it belonged, The car belonged to a friend of ours too that was around the shop all the time who'd passed away. So like him getting that car was like a big deal. And then, you know... Um, he calls it Lizette because it's the light to him. So lighthouses are a big thing to him and he likes to be positive and it's, I don't know, it just turned out really cool, all the stuff he did, make it all work. So we, we didn't really touch on on the H series. I don't want to sort of go too too much further down that particular rabbit hole, but obviously it is what it is. Uh, in terms of the, the power and boost levels, can you let us know sort of what, what's it producing at the moment? Um, so at, at 26 pounds, it made 720 horse on the all wheel drive dyno. Um, so pretty good at the track is, is first time really out. It went nine, four, um, 147. And then on sick week, the first day he went nine, six at 151. So it makes, it makes decent power. He's 60 foot in the low one forties. Um, and again, he's learning it is his foot's not the same. There's not a slipper on it yet, which is something we want to do. Um, but you know, he's learned um, kind of riding it out some. And, uh, I mean, just watching an all-wheel drive Honda leave, it's it's another world. It's kind of a game changer in some ways. Yeah, I, I, we, we did uh, have the opportunity to talk to um, Norris from Prionto Racing uh, at, back at TX2K a, a while back about the four-wheel drive uh, sort of thing. But, I mean, what, what it sort of says, you know, one one four is probably not unheard of or not too difficult to achieve with an all front wheel drive package. So do you see at the moment the, the four wheel drive being um being, you know, an advantage or is this sort of something that in its future once it starts getting dialed and, and turned up, that's where the four wheel drive's really gonna come into its own? Oh yeah. Once it's dialed, it's gonna be amazing. I mean there's there's already guys that are, you know, bottom one, two, sixty foots with them, you know. It's, it's like you said, it's that learning how much power to leave with, you know, what right viscosity fluid to put in the viscous itself, managing the power as it leaves, just all of that stuff's going to start to really come into play. But right now it seems like, you know, it'll let you leave with a ton. Um, I haven't put a ton in it yet, but it seems like it'll just, it'll just take it. I haven't got it. I haven't seen it sit sideways yet when it leaves. So we've probably got a ways to go. (laughs) Obviously needs more power then. (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. We haven't got there yet. You, you mentioned the uh, fluid for the viscous. So for, for those who aren't aware, this is the, the center differential which provides the the uh, power transfer to the, the rear differential. So you can essentially change the amount of drive being being sent to the rear by the viscosity of the fluid you put in that center diff. Yep, exactly. You can change it that way or you can also change it by putting a, like a bigger rear wheel on it. Uh, cause okay. they have a different gear ratio as the front. So any kind of playing with those things just helps give the car more of a push. And that's all sure. it's doing, right? It's just giving the front wheels, front wheel drive a push. 
one of the the obvious issues here is you're you're you've got 700 horsepower as you mentioned, and, and you're putting this through a CRV transmission. I I don't really know what CRVs came out with. I'm guessing it's probably 150 or, or, or less. So, yeah, how exactly. are these production parts coping in in a drag racing application? Because I mean. I've broken some parts in my time, and they were they were probably stronger than than what you're dealing with. So yeah, how, how's that holding up? Um, so, like he has done like one four sixty foots with the stock transfer case, but right now he you know he's got a billet transfer case, a billet front case, PPG gears. Um, he's got strong stuff to help with that. As of the viscous, that's still stock, and the rear diff is still stock. So those handle the power pretty good. Um, Honda didn't make total junk, but, um, the axles, you know, got to work on that stuff, but it is still, like you said, still needs some kind of slipper to make it work real good, but all wheel drive. I mean, it's pretty awesome. The the good thing about drag racing is that it quickly lets you know what parts need upgrading. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing them, there may still be a learning curve ahead uh, as as you go a bit quicker, yeah, you'll, you'll I mean, see. Just follow along for sure. <laughs> at, at this stage, I'd, I'd guess that for a, a built H series, uh, twenty six psi, seven hundred horsepower, uh, there's there's probably a little bit more uh, on the on the table there. What what do you sort of see that combination is capable of in terms of power, boost levels, etc. Once it's dialed and you really want to start leaning on it. So so boosted boy Kyle here at the shop. We we built this old prelude and it's literally the the other spare engine that i used to run so we've got a pretty good idea um that one made a little over a thousand horse so i could see shane's being in the same neck of the woods uh 1100 horse and then like you said um seeing what drivetrain can handle i mean obviously there's guys like speed factory that are already out there developing things which helps the rest of us uh so there's a lot of guys working on things trying to make them better um the K-Series all-wheel drive trans seems to handle a lot once they've got a good gear set in them, you know. Um, we run that Quaif in the minivan of the Booster Boys, and uh, that thing's been stout. That, that works really well. The 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 B-Series one seems to need some work, but the guys are, are working real hard on developing that, so... It is it is always a bit of a frustration with drag racing with you know, production based parts. You yeah. know, you can put the best gear set in the world yeah. in, but I mean, at least in my experience, they they aren't still ever one hundred percent bulletproof. And I mean, that's no yeah. disrespect to PPG. I mean, when you are dealing with production components yep. in, in general, there's, there's limitations imposed. So there's only so much you can do, particularly yeah. when, when you take a, a factory component that was designed for you know sub two hundred horsepower and make eleven hundred. I mean, that, you, you worlds apart. So there's an understanding there. But yeah. I mean, I for one never particularly enjoy going to a drag meeting and, and ending up sort of on my back underneath the car pu- pulling the trans out and you know inevitably getting covered yeah. in gear oil, which which no one really likes so that <laughs> that's one of the aspects from from my my sort of past which I don't look forward to jumping back to I'll be honest I say I, I I'll be honest I kind of have a passion for some of that thrash I still do um <laughs> maybe why I'm in the Honda world so much but um I just, I, I enjoy all of that. You know what I mean? I, I like to show that this thing can come right out and go right back in. It's no big deal. Um, and it, it seems to inspire some of these young guys to just, you know, 
like get out there and do it. You know, don't quit. I, I think make the next round. One one of the aspects there that that's really important, and I learned this the hard way, is designing the car so it is easy to work with. So absolutely. What 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 I'll sort of give my own uh, Mitsubishi Evo three. Uh, we tube frame the front of that, which. Um, was an exercise in frustration because we did it to to save weight, and the reality is, I think we saved all of about uh, ten pounds. It, it just didn't really give us what we wanted, and because we hadn't really thought the whole process through, uh, the the way the fabrication was done, if we wanted to pull the transmission, which was the part that always broke, uh, or even if it didn't, every ten passes we we fried a, a triple plate clutch, so it had to come out every drag meeting, regardless. You had to pull the engine out to get the gearbox out it was a shit show so yeah we learned from that we built an evo 9 that claimed the the late model evo world record went 834 170 mile an hour and we purposely thought this through and we redesigned uh the cross member that supported the engine and and tranny and that and that way we could get that gearbox out i think I think the record for getting that out on a hoist was about eighteen or twenty minutes. So, you know, you you do learn from from your disasters, and I think you're right. You know, the 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 never say die attitude. I think is pretty important. Now, you, you've mentioned this event sick week, which has only just gone down, and um, I'd like to get a bit of a, a quick rundown on on what sick week is is and what it entails. It's a drag and drive event, which I, I absolutely love. Drag and drive events, you. You bring your race car, you, you, uh, you and the, the, the co-driver or the driver and co-driver, they're the only ones allowed to work on the cars. Um, you have to bring your own tools, your own parts with you. Um, and you basically try to get the best average you can. So like sick week was five different tracks. Um, so every track you're trying to, you know, run your best time and, uh, get that averaged out, average down there. And that's how you do You'd win it. But like I said, you got to go with a co-driver and trailer your own stuff. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's super challenging and awesome. What's the sort of uh, the distance between tracks that you're driving overnight? On sick week, it was probably around 150 to 150 miles or so. Um, like race weeks are usually between two and 500. Okay. So, you know, it, it depends on the event. Um, but that one was, sick week was uh, just a ton of fun just because our challenges and uh, we were in a brand new car that hadn't done anything like that barely had driven on the street at all so it was cool and 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 a challenge so yeah i've seen some of the the videos on your your channel from sick week and it's obviously it's not uh import only you've got a, a lot of uh domestics there as well and i'm interested to get a bit of a feel from you on like what what is the the vibe like in the u.s with a, a import versus domestic event i mean i know when we first started import import racing here in new zealand uh we were kind of like not really welcome at the drag strip and it took a while before the V8 heavyweights kind of accepted us and grudgingly let us share the drag strip but that was definitely something that took a while what, what's it like in the US? Um, I, kind of we, we've gone through those so, same growing pains um, but now um, Tom Bailey has been super accepting of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to build and uh it, it right now it's been actually pretty good our psca races are import domestic type events too that we're involved with 
So it's, it's growing. It's getting better and better all the time. You know, uh, for a long time, they were looked at as, you know, little cars that broke and blew up all the time. Well, the reliability, the ECU stuff's making that a lot better. Um, like you said, the slipper stuff and, and just learning to manage the tire and the chassis, right. Um, I think you'll see more reliability and us not pushing past our own boundaries that we, we kind of know. Um, so it's, it's us working with those guys and just, just having a good example, cleaning up after ourselves at the track, working hard. I think, uh, you know, us breaking things and fixing them at the track, those guys have, uh, given us a lot of respect for and our no quit attitude and, and all those kind of things, uh, you know, just knock it down. Those guys see we're car guys too. And that we're all in this together. We just chose a different air pump and we love it. I mean, I think from my own perspective, what I saw start to to change the tide here in New Zealand was uh, when a bunch of us actually started running some pretty quick numbers. And, yeah, there's that you know, too. That, at the end of the day, uh, we're all car people, guys and girls, and you know, something that, that, that runs a mid-eight, for example, I don't really care if it's got four cylinders, six cylinders, or, or eight. I mean, that that's there's some respect that goes along with that because everyone knows that that is a struggle no matter what the platform is that you're working on. So I think that that's something that, that I saw change. All right, Brent, um, one last topic that I wanted to, to touch on, and we'll, we'll maybe try and get through this one a, a little quicker because I know we've gone a bit long here already, but um, you know, I just wanted to get some details around another project that I've seen on your channel, which is the, the PFI Speed uh, Legend. Uh, it looks like you're bringing this back out. So uh, for those, again, we, we don't have the benefit of uh, graphics here, visuals, so t- tell us what, what this car is and, and what it's all about. It's a 94 Honda Civic. Um back in the early 2000s even in the late 90s it's it's one of those cars that we put together and we're racing uh idrc with and then nopi and then the nhra and we campaigned the car for a long time until the nhra basically went away and that's kind of when the car got shelved um it belongs to my good friend jj who you know we raced together we he kind of, he even worked here for a few years early on, you know, um, he's always been a great friend and part of the family here. Um, so it's, he's had it stored and sitting, um, Tony Paulo, who, you know, um, pretty well, he, um, the last time it, it got some work done, he set it up with the X-Track transmission, um, Motec M800 and everything. And we actually never got to run it with this, with the setup. As the car sat from about, like I said, 04, uh, the X-Track went away. Some stuff has been picked apart, you know, and has gone away. And uh, we've all been talking and we've got the wild hair to bring it back out. And uh, my son, Steven, who last year built his own little Civic. And honestly, it was his first year ever going drag racing. He went from running 12s to 10-3. And again, doing it, a lot of it on his own uh, with a little engine he built out and the dirt parking lot, which, you know, it's kind of cool. Impressive. But yeah. But he put it together himself and did it. And yeah, 1030. Um, but he's gonna, he's gonna pilot it this year. He's kind of just, you know, he's, he's got a super big passion and love for it as well. So it's kind of cool to bring an old car back, uh, back in the day with the Liberty transmission, which was a four speed and a B series engine. It went 847, um, 174 miles an hour. So you know, it was pretty quick back then in the hot rod class. Um, but with today's technology and turbo stuff and 
you know, I, I, I just want to see what we could really do. Where, where, where do you see that going? Because I 100% agree, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing, why I'd like to have my time again with, with my old Jag car is, you know, we, we were stuck with uh, HKS T51R ball bearing turbo and, you know, it was, it was, if you want lag, you've got it. Uh, we didn't really make any boost until the factory rev limit of a 4G63 and then from 7.5 to 11 it was ho- hold on. Um, but, you know, te- the technology and the modern turbos, I still, I'm still blown away just how good they are now and how much response they can provide as well. So, yeah, where, where do you sort of see this going? Are, are, we, are we looking at sevens? Yeah, that's, and that's the goal is sevens for sure. Yeah. You know, I'd love to say a mid seven, but I want to start with, with getting it into the sevens. Um, we, we've got a pretty good program for that with the fuel tech stuff. So, um, I, I, I think we can do it for sure. So that's definitely the goal. Okay. Now there's a couple of other things that are are real standouts on this car. Obviously the front end is, is, is tube framed and, and it's obvious, yeah. Go, go watch a video after this and we'll put some links in but I um, mean the the way the engine's been moved forward and lent forward to get all of that weight forward of the front axle line all of the engine mass is forward of the sen- the axle line which makes a lot of sense on a front wheel drive car uh, wh- one of the aspects that's obvious again is that it's dry sumped and we we went through that as well on my, my own car we dry sumped that we actually were having issues not down the drag strip but it was more with oil surge when we pulled the chute at the end of the strip uh, however, the Evo 9 that we then built that, that held that late model Evo world record, uh, we stayed wet sump with that with a pretty well developed uh, baffled sump. So with drag racing, because I mean, we're, only, we're accelerating and we're, we're braking, so we do have a lot of control over the, the G-forces that the engine's subjected to. You know, these days, if you were to build that car, would you, would you straight away go dry sump with the cost and complexity that involves, or do you think you can get away with a wet sump uh, set up? Um, I would... I would prefer like a, a wet sump type setup with still an external pump on a B series, to be honest with you, just cause the oil, the, um, oil pump gears can shatter so easily, you know, uh, four cylinders are inherently unbalanced. So you get this crazy, um, vibration through everything. So I don't know. I think, uh, I would, I would still like a wet sump type setup. I, I don't know if I'd go dry sump still, but this setup's, kind of going to stay that way because obviously what we've kind of built but oh you've got it you're not going to get rid of it yeah, just yeah exactly in, yeah if, if you felt that was an essential and and you know with this car we never had any dry sump or oiling issues you know we always you know pre-oiled it before we started it you know pull the belt you know run oil through it all the time and then um obviously having some kind of pressure controls and stuff and just safeties sure now the other aspect is uh Back in its original guise, it, it uh, looked like it was non-intercooled, so I'm assuming it was running on methanol fuel uh, back yeah. then. Uh, and you've you've talked in your videos about the fact that uh, you are going to be adding an intercooler and, and and moving the fuel cell to make room for that. Uh, so, are you staying on methanol and the intercooler is your preference, or are you dropping back to something like E85? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it on methanol. Um, I, I still prefer methanol, and from my own experiences of playing with methanol, even there's still some advantages to having it intercooled. So I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. I've kind of become my own believer just from my own tests on other projects and other stuff. 
um, that you can still, uh, there's still a decent advantage to intercooling even with methanol. I personally ran intercooler with methanol and, and I think if I built another engine at that sort of power level, I, I'd probably stick to it just because I know it and I, I, I trust it. But it is one of those, it was a very split opinion out there because you, you walk around the pits of, of any drag event and you'll see as many methanol boosted cars running with or without intercooler so it's definitely I don't think it's a, a guarantee that you you have to have it but uh, yeah just interested to get your perspective on that okay I mean we could talk another hour on on that car alone but we are we're going a little bit long so I think we'll, we'll, we'll move towards uh, closing closing this thing off and, and letting you get back to, to work uh, we, we always like to ask the same questions to every guest at the end of our show and uh, the, the first of those is what what's coming up for you in the future what sort of what's next for PFI speech where, where do you sort of see yourself going any cool projects in, in the in the mix other than the uh the car we just talked about yep um my own race car show enough my little s2000s just about wrapped up just waiting for a drive shaft which could be even today so i'm pretty stoked about that um that car i've got a low seven high six second goal for and i you know i look forward to that um racing more with my son shane and then having our own little psca events um because we liked our, our entire little racing community to get together. So we have four, um, four events this year at Bandemir Speedway, um, where we'll have, you know, all these guys get together with all their little front wheel drives or rear wheel drive cars. And we all just go out and race together and have a good time. So those are always fun. People can follow us up on, on the PFI Speed YouTube, you know, always putting videos out there showing what's going on here and, and having a good time and trying to inspire others to do the same. And, uh, you know, that's where we're at. That's what we're doing. We're having a good time. We've got a bunch of Cletus and Carter events again this year, and then a whole bunch of front wheel drive racing, um, down in Florida. So we've got a busy year and it's going to be awesome for sure. Sounds like you're, you're living the dream. And I mean, I think the other thing that, uh, is pretty obvious from what you've just mentioned there, it's not, it's not just out going out and, uh, and running PBs on the strip. It's definitely the, the social element of drag racing and the camaraderie that, uh, that you build with a bunch of like-minded people that that's really, really important. Yeah. We're, we're doing it because we're having fun. Yeah. And that's what advances all this stuff. You know, I, we don't have all the right ideas, but somebody else might interject and have something and, you know what I mean? We build relationships and we build tech, you know, we just keep pushing the, this, all this technology. Like you said earlier, you know, it's not rocket science, but in some ways it is. And, uh, we're, we're controlling these little rockets and having a good time doing it. So anyways, just keep an open mind about what other people are doing. That's right. All right. So, you know, looking at, at what what's sort of gone on in your career so far, and obviously your sh- your sunshine's following in your footsteps. Uh, I mean, is there any advice you, you're giving to Shane now in order to sort of fast track his uh, his career and maybe avoid any of the potential pitfalls that that you've come across? You know, I always like I tell him all the time: don't get frustrated. You know, this you're gonna struggle with things, but just the clearer you can keep your head and the clear you can just push forward you will get through it you will find the answer and uh and i think that goes a long way with everything we do but just keep being motivated and inspired and push forward for sure that's that's good advice and i mean i i know that we'll there's always times when you're building cars working on cars and racing cars that uh you know, things don't go your way the the highs and lows of drag racing are intense but uh you're yeah, trying to keep that in mind it, it's definitely solid advice 
Our last question for today, Brent, uh, you've kind of already alluded to this as well. You've got a, a very uh, successful YouTube channel, uh, but uh, you know, other places that people can follow you, you're also on Instagram? Instagram and Facebook, yep. We're on Instagram, Facebook, okay. and, uh, and uh, yeah, YouTube. All right. Well, we'll we'll drop some links to uh, into the show notes as well, so people can follow those and check you out if they aren't already. Oh, thanks heaps for your time today, Brent. Really appreciate the chat. Yeah, it's been so cool. And uh, be, be, best of luck with the EPA. We can only hope that works out well for you. Hey, we'll keep on fighting. That's for sure. Love this stuff. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.